0: Advent is the first four Sundays, well, it's the four Sundays preceding Christmas, It's the time for us to prepare for Christmas, for Christ's coming, and we have been taking during that time, if you haven't been with us, I know we have a lot of visitors today, we've been taking during that time a a tour responding to a statement that Jesus said. Jesus said that he came to give us life, that he would give us rest, that he would give us rest for our souls. It is said that our true self is displayed when we're in moments of difficulty or when life is really pressing in on us. And so it kind of it makes sense for us to be able to see in the life of Jesus whether he is able to follow through with that promise of being somebody who can offer that kind of life, if that kind of rest. If he's the kind of king and savior who can actually offer those things to us specifically during a time of pressure. And we have been looking over the last couple of weeks at what could be arguably called the second most difficult moment in the life of Jesus, which was the time of his trial in the desert, his temptation. So we've, we've been looking at this. <clears throat> it's, it's definitely a, a moment to look at Christ's humanity, which is part of the celebration of Christmas that we see that Christ became a human being, and we celebrate that. Although it must be admitted, as Jay said a couple of weeks ago, he said, this is kind of a semi-Christmas message series. Uh, I admit, it's non-intuitive. It's not the right way normally for us to see it. Uh, But there are three different temptations that Jesus has in this interaction with this devil who's there. Uh, and the first one was to see if he would do miracles for his own benefit. Would he be somebody who looks after number one first before taking care of somebody else? Then last week, we saw that Jesus was tempted to take the easy path to power, that he would avoid going through suffering. All that would be required of him is to join the dark side. Uh, so we, we saw that. And what our master chose to do, it was instead of going up the ladder of success, he descended to be a servant. He said, you should be a servant too. No one's greater than your master. You should be like me. So if we are followers of Jesus, we should also be trying to descend to be servants of people around us and make our lives look like his life of service. All right, there's three temptations. So what is the third one? What is the thing, the lie that the devil has cooked up to be able to try to trip Jesus up? And we're going to see that today in the book of Luke. If you have a Bible, open up your Bible to the book of Luke. You can open your app. There are a few Bibles that are in the back on the on the bookshelf in the back, so you can join me in that. Before that, let's let's pray. Lord, we we welcome you this morning. We say at other times, we know you're here, but I want to posture my heart in a way that says I want to receive from you. You are everywhere, but I I want to say to you that I want you here. May, May you speak to us today from your word. May it help us to focus our eyes on Jesus so we can see not only what rest he has to offer, but really what life and goodness he has to offer as well. May we live into the fullness of what you have called us to do as individuals and as a community, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, this is in Luke 4, verses 9 to 13. The devil led him, Jesus, to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Okay, short little bit there. There's a lot for us to get from that. But in the previous two temptations, Jesus didn't try to argue with the devil about what was going on. He just simply quoted Scripture to him. He gave him kind of a one-line quote of Scripture. I invite you to go back and listen or watch previous sermons about what we did that. So I think he's kind of saying, maybe he's saying, hey, so it seems like you're taking Scripture pretty seriously. Let's test that. And so he ends up quoting Scripture to Jesus, and it comes from Psalm 91. This whole thing about the angels protecting God's servants, that he would protect you, keep your your foot from striking against a stone. And what's interesting is that was originally meant for kind of average, everyday followers of God that were God's people to get that. And so the devil's saying, hey, listen, if that's true for an average person, how much more for you? You know, you you are the son of God, fine. Let's see where, if God's going to take care of you, you should be able to do this thing. But what we notice is that he quotes scripture in a way that takes that scripture out of context, not surprising that he would use scripture in a bad way, right? The, the portrait he's painting is of a follower of God that doesn't correspond to any picture that we have of what a relationship between God and his follower should look like. That's not what this is supposed to look like. L- listen to what philosopher Jacques Ellul says that we can quote a Frenchman. The great rule is that no text, no verse, and no declaration can stand by itself. To separate a text from the totality of God's revelation is inevitably, it inevitably causes us to distort it. There is, in fact, a double separation that we must avoid. First of all, and this is a classic error, that there is a separation of a verse or a sentence from its text, from its context. When we argue that it is possible to make the Bible prove anything, We are perfectly correct if we separate a sentence from its context. Hey, He's saying, listen, you know, there are people who aren't believers who who complain or accuse Christians of saying, hey, you know, you can make the Bible say whatever you want. And Jacques Hillel is saying, yeah, that's totally true. If you take a a word or a a phrase apart from its context, you can twist that thing however you want. So we need to be careful not to do that. I, I appreciate that he agrees. Yeah, sure, fine. The second separation is even more serious, however it is to separate a text which always refers to God or the action of God from the revelation of God and about God as a whole as as it is given in the whole Bible. What he's saying is that the second context, so the context is specifically like what words are kind of written around that thing, what, what thought is being communicated in that moment, but there's a greater context and that is the Bible is about God. Jacques and the Bible is telling us that one of the big mistakes that we can make in Scripture is to start to think that the Bible is actually about us. Because it's not. The Bible is not primarily about us. It does involve us. and It is written to us, but it is about God. It's about God's faithfulness, how God has cared for his people, how he's been faithful to them. And when we start to think that it's primarily about us, we're going to start to twist it in one way or another. Because when I do that, I assume that the Bible, if I think it's about me, then I think that the Bible needs to conform to my tastes, to to my uh, preconceived ideas, to my expectations for what life is supposed to look like. But That's not the way that the world works. That's not the way that the Bible works as well. We have to be the ones who are shaped into God's shape. My natural inclination is to read the Bible from my own perspective. That's totally normal. We do that. I want to see it with my tastes and my desires. And and my desires are pretty simple. I mostly want everything to go my way, the way that I want it, in the time that I want it, right? And I don't know all of you guys, but I can kind of assume that mostly you think the same thing too, right? We just want everything to go our way in the time that we want it. That's all. That's all. <laughs> and, and that way of approaching Scripture, if we're approaching Scripture in that way, it's going to get us into some trouble. So let's take one verse in particular. This is from Philippians 1, verses 18 and 19. This is part of a letter that was written in the first century CE, first century after Jesus, and that, by a Christian leader named Paul. At this time, Paul is in jail, a nasty kind of jail, and he's writing to his friends, and he says this, yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. So he's saying, hey, this stuff that's happened to me, it's going to turn out for my deliverance. And when we take this verse by itself, it sounds a lot, actually, like the verse that the devil quotes, right, about you're not going to hit your foot against a stone. He says, hey, I'm going to be delivered. There, this is going to be for his deliverance. Paul literally says, God is going to deliver me. And, and I think that we presume, we assume that what God means is he's going to deliver him from his jail cell. Makes a lot of sense. And I think you know, we would add, as an aside, we would say, well, you know, if God's going to do that, probably it would be nice that God could kind of make it up to him. He's had kind of a hard time, right? So maybe God can send him to some beach in Greece somewhere, give him some kind of a cold drink, uh, I don't know, make a new ice machine that didn't exist then, something like that. You know, because Paul's made sacrifices, he deserves it. And I, as a reader, I want that to be what deliverance means for Paul, because I want that to be what deliverance means for me. But Paul pops our bubble in the next verse. This is in Philippians 1.20, the very next verse. I eagerly expect and I hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body. When? Whether by life or by death. We don't normally put that second part on there. So Paul's saying, hey, I am going to be delivered. But he, and he believes wholeheartedly in this part that God cares for his people. He's, the angels will lift them up. They won't strike their foot against the stone, all that stuff. But not in the sense that he's, if he prays enough, he's never gonna hit his pinky toe on the edge of his bed. Okay? But in the sense that whatever happens, he is safely cared for by God. Whatever happens, he is safely cared for by God. And, and I don't like the fact that we add in there whatever happens. I don't want that part to be in there. I want to decide what happens. But I'm not in control. You're not in control. We try our best, but we are not in control. And we, and we acknowledge that. We see there's stuff that's happening to us, right? The, the, there are things that feel out of control for us. Maybe there's that issue at work that feels a bit out of control. Uh, maybe it's the choices that your children are making, whether they are small children who live at home, or whether they have children of their own. There are questions about our health, about maybe a loved one's health, feels out of our control. Looming questions about the future or what's next. Even questions about our loved one's faith. All of those things feel out of our control. And the terrible reality is that what's going to happen is not necessarily going to be comfortable. And it's not necessarily going to be the way that I would have chosen for myself. We're going to have to face what's next, and what's next might actually be truly hard. But whatever happens in that situation, I want us to hear this. You are safely cared for by God. You are cared for by God, even if the circumstances are difficult. And Paul, he was completely convinced of this. He says in a different place. This is in in Romans. Paul says this, For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, Nor things to come, nor powers, not height, depth, or anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there's absolutely nothing, nothing at all, nothing that can separate us from God's love in Christ. None of the nightmare scenarios that we can play out uh, during our day or wake you up at night, none of those things are going to be able to separate you from the love of God. And that, that is the true sense. Of the word deliverance. That God can and will deliverance. Deliver us. That's, I do speak English, even though I'm a little bit French. Yes, deliver us. So we can get into trouble when we equate, though, when we equate deliverance with being completely safe or nothing bad happens to us. Uh, That's not what it is, because we live in a world where stuff is going to happen to us, where things are going to happen, where you feel like your world caves in. And there are bad things that happen where we can go kind of like, well, you know, gosh, that's kind of the way the world is. That kind of stinks. I know that's not that bad. But it also has sorrows that are so deep that make us feel like the world has fallen on us. And that's the world that we also live in. It feels like it's going to shatter us beyond repair and we won't be able to recover from it. That's what happened to a guy named Jerry Sitzer. Uh, He is a professor, I think he's still a professor, at Whitworth College in Spokane. Uh, He experienced that. He he tells his story in a few different places. One place where he tells it very poignantly is in this book called A Grace Disguised. I do recommend it. He's an amazing guy. What happened to him is he was having a great day out with his family. He had had a wonderful day. Uh, He had his four kids, his wife, and actually his mom tagged along for this trip. They had driven out a long way to go to a special event had a wonderful, memorable day, and on their way back as they were driving, there was actually a drunk driver crossed over the median and struck their car. And in that accident, uh, his mother and his wife and one of his daughters died. And so three generations of people snuffed out quickly, and he's suddenly now a widower Three little kids, his two-year-old had actually broken his femur during the, the accident. He needs to have his own grieving, and how is he going to be able to care for his kids? doesn't even have his mom to help out or his wife to help out, and he's got to go through this. So terrible, terrible. And he has hope still. I want to tell you this is a very hopeful book, but he does write this. He's very realistic. He says, no one is safe because the universe is hardly a safe place. It's often mean, unpredictable, and unjust. Loss has little to do with our notion of fairness. And you might have experienced some of that same kind of earth-moving sorrow in your life. And if you have, I do recommend this one. So, A Grace Disguised Jerry Sitzer, to read that. He's not going to uh, minimize your pain, but he will offer hope in it. So, the devil talking to Jesus, he is trying to say the way that you will be safe is if you are delivered in the way that you want to be. We should, he wants Jesus and he wants you and me to think that the way that we measure God's love is according to, on the basis of how much he protects us from bad stuff that we don't like. And if Jesus were to actually do what he says, if he were to, to cast himself down, he would actually be putting God to the test. He would be putting, he would be forcing the Father's hand where he ha- has to act to do something in that situation. And, and if Jesus did that, I think that would be a breach of trust. It's, it's really mistrust to do that. It's, it's kind of manipulative to do that. And, and manipulation is not love. And in response to the devil, Jesus quotes a verse that was important in Israel's history Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6:16 6, do not put the lord your god to the test and and if you read that in context Jesus is reading it well in context uh, he it's referring to a time when when Israel was coming out of the Exodus. They were being delivered out of Egypt from their slavery in Egypt, and God is sending them to a new place, and they had started to complain to God. They were, And it says that they put God to the test at that point. And Jesus is now taking this place. He is acting as the true Israel, again in that same place, not the one who is being delivered, but the one who is offering deliverance to other people. And he's, he's the one, he says, do not put Yahweh, your God, to the test. He's not going to respond in the way that the people did before. If Jesus had given into to this thing, it would have been a way for him to try to control the situation, to control the outcome, to control God in some way. And, and we, we face that same kind of temptation. We, we want to control situations. Sometimes we want to control how people react to things especially probably at Christmas, we try to be the ones who are in the driver's seat. And I wonder if you can think of one right now. Is there a situation in your life right now that feels like, gosh, I, I wish I could just get a little bit of control over this thing, some, some steer those people in a certain way, to have our, my circumstance go this way? And sometimes, even through our prayers, we can try to start to control God. Trying to push God. And that, that's probably not your goal. That's not your like setting out like, oh, I, I just want to control God. That's not the way you start off. But that's ha- kind of how it goes. Because when things start to feel out of control for us, it's just kind of natural. We kind of, like if you're the pastor in the car, you kind of start to step on the brake when you're getting a little too close. You just kind of want to grab the wheel. Like, hey, Jesus, what if we were to steer over this way a little bit, right? You kind of want to push it in a different direction. And what the devil does is he, give, he asks a question. And I think it's a question that has barbs in it. And what I mean by that is, it's a question that that was a temptation to Jesus at that moment, but I think it's one that would stick with him for a while. It's, this, all of us have had somebody say something terrible to us that sticks around for a long time and echoes in our head, and that's what Satan does. That's kind of Satan's move right there. I think it would be hard for Jesus to shake the thing that he says. Because I think what he's saying is, hey, isn't going to the... Isn't throwing yourself off of the temple an opportunity for you to be saved by God? And if you don't trust that God would save you in this situation, why would you think he would save you from the cross? Why would he ever save you in another situation? If you don't think he's going to save you here, why would you have faith that he would save you there? I think this touches all of our buttons as people. Uh, when we are in difficult situations, we start to ask some of these same questions. Gosh, you know, this thing is hard. It, it, does God really have my best interest at heart? Th- this thing is so hard. It is, am I all alone right now? It is, is all the, has all this work been for nothing? We wonder that when things are really hard. And all of those questions are, they've, they've touched the root of our desire to be in control but they also touch a root of trust because in each of those situations, we can also trust. We can say, am I alone? No, I know. I know that my situation is very difficult, but I know that God is here because I've seen him with me at other times. I, I know this is hard, but I, I know that this is not the way that I would want it to go, but I know that God is good and he's got my best interest at heart. Maybe I still need to change. No, it's not all for nothing because I need to be, I know that God is working out good things in the world. That's that's a way, you know, that same nerve, it's it's that that trust and control thing is the same thing. Is it a trial or is it going to be trust? Are we trying God or are we going to trust him? Because putting God to the test is a way of just trying to control or to not trust him. We have to relinquish some of our control. So this isn't the end of Jesus' temptations. In fact, it says that in our passage, when the devil finished all this tempting, he left him for an opportune time. And that opportune time is definitely referring to Jesus' arrest and his trial, his suffering, his crucifixion. It's a point of amazing pain. And so everything is going to come to a head at the cross for him. All these same temptations, I think, are going to return for Jesus, this man who's facing these amazing trials. they they, They carried on until that day when he would be murdered in a terribly humiliating way, even though he was the best person who ever lived. So Jesus came to fulfill the law and to, to save us from sin. And, and he, those, even though he did that, he would have been tempted to pull out at any point. I, I think Jesus, he had enormous power at his disposal. He could have chosen to be more self-serving instead of selfless. That's the first temptation that he faced. Jesus said, hey, to, to Peter at some point, listen, I don't need to, to, you don't need to defend me. There are. If I wanted to, I could call legions of angels to defend me. He says, I don't need that. I'm not going to defend myself. He's not going to take a shortcut to power that avoids passing through suffering like the second temptation. And here he's going to say, I will trust the Father's plans because I know he's trustworthy, even if it's difficult. That's this third temptation. And when he's crucified, people shouted shouted up to him on the cross, if you are the son of God, you should come down from the cross. And we hear the voice of the devil in there. That's what he said to him several times in this temptation. If you are the son of God, do this. Because the people told him to do that because they couldn't conceive of somebody who is the son of God ever dying in that way. But the reason why he didn't come down is precisely what they say about him, because he is the Son of God, because he was doing something greater. He was winning salvation for us. There's a really powerful image in the book of Revelation, and I think we can close with this, that that points to this whole thing of bringing together uh, Jesus' power and his service, but it also means that he gave himself up, but there is glory for him afterwards. It shows that his trust in the Father was rewarded. This is in, uh, the, in Revelation 5. And there's this, this image. Um, let's, let's go ahead and blank it. I'll just tell, I'll tell the, the story. So the, in Revelation, there's this image of uh, beautiful in heaven. And there is, they, they have this scroll that is locked up and people can't open it. And, and people are in despair that nobody was found worthy to be able to open this scroll. And, and the author, uh, John, who sees this, this revealed image that comes to him, he starts to weep and weep. He says, because nobody can take care of this thing. Nobody can solve this problem. And somebody next to him says, no, don't despair because the lion of Judah has triumphed. And he says he looked, and it wasn't a lion, but it was a lamb that looked like it had been slain. And he comes forward and he's able to open it. And the people... They, they bow down before him, and they say this, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. It's talking about Jesus. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation, people from your background, people like you and me, from every tribe, every nation, you have made them to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. In this image, everything feels out of control. If you feel like nobody can solve all the world's problems, there's nobody in the world who is up to the task of solving it. That's true, and it causes us to weep if we actually think about it. Say nobody can do this. But in this image in Revelation, they say, behold. The Lion of Judah has triumphed. He's a lamb who was slain, and that is Jesus who gave his life for us. We don't have to be in control of everything because God is. And Jesus has proven himself to be the worthy kind of savior and king who can care for us, even in times of great need, our own individual need and the needs of the world. Because he doesn't give in to the lies of Satan. and He can be the one who can provide for us. Not only us, but he is going to heal the nations. That's really good news. I think it's good news for us at Christmas to think God's in control. God's in control. Whatever that thing didn't work, that gift is not going to come in time. Uh, whatever it is, God is in control. And we can trust him. So th- that's good news for us right? That's something we can celebrate, that God was willing to become a human being, to give his life for us, but also we see that he knew all the temptations we know. That's good for my soul. I can rest in that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that Jesus didn't just wave a magic wand even, but we, we see that he became a human being. We can see our own temptations in what he faced. I see my own desire for control in what he faced, but may I not only learn from him in ways to be able to trust you, but to see all the times I don't trust you, all the ways that I am broken, and to be able to say, that's okay, because he is my savior. He did it for me. The lion of Judah has triumphed. He won this lamb who was slain. Thank you for that gift. May we, for all of us, let's, maybe you can take a moment I'd like you to take a moment and think, what is something that you want control over that you can ask God to give you confidence to, to be able to trust in him right now? We want to trust you, God, with all these things. Some of them are very big. Some of them are very small. But we want to walk with you in confidence that you are the God who, who thinks about us, you care about our needs, and you know how to deal with them. We pray in Christ's name, amen.